Welcome to the Science Allies podcast, a product of the Alliance for Science conversation with our global ecosystem of scientists, communicators, decision makers and activists, all working to build resilience and better futures for communities around the world. So welcome Dr. Prakash, who's the Dean of the College of Arts and Science at Tuskegee University. So we're here today because this is the final day of our Speaking Science um, conf uh, workshop where we've been training about 40 extraordinary young people who came from historically black universities and so then and then they're working on cutting-edge technologies, gene editing, molecular biology across a spectrum of agricultural disciplines. So that's what the Alliance for Science is doing here. We are partnering with Tuskegee, who brought together this um, cross-section of diverse students. And this particular activity is funded by FAR. FAR is the, the Foundation for Agricultural Research. Um, which is one of our partners in a number of study, uh, work that we do around communication. So welcome, Dr. Prakash, and I just wanted you to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what you do here at Tuskegee and um, how you're supporting these students generally. Well, thank you very much, Sheila. Um, nice to be talking to you. Thank you for having me on this podcast. And also, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here on the campus of Tuskegee University and you are helping uh, support this wonderful workshop where we are training, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, about 40 students from across the Southeast from various uh, historically black universities in agriculture, the so-called 1890 institutions, and they are here to, to be trained in, in science communication, and that's very, very important. And uh, I, I've been at Tuskegee University for the past 33 years. They've been here for long enough, so I can proudly say that I am part of the history of Tuskegee University. I came here as a very young faculty member uh, to start a program in biotechnology. I was the, one, the first scientist here on the campus to, to begin work on using biotechnology and worked on uh, sweet potato and peanut. And I helped uh, develop methods to grow both of them in, under plant tissue culture conditions and help identify methods on how we can introduce foreign genes into them and so develop GMOs and also done some genomic work on both of these crops and now although I'm not very really actively involved myself in research uh, the people who whom I trained and who have continued on my work uh, who are now full professors are, are working on gene editing using gene editing uh, in developing sweet uh, sweet potatoes with improved qualities, for instance, and peanuts with improved oil quality, and even peanut that is hypoallergenic. So it's very exciting, ah. the kind of research what we are doing at Tuskegee, yes. and also to able to bring that element of communication here at the workshop. 
Yes, uh, we had an opportunity to go to uh, Tuskegee and we were in a lab. I must say your labs are fantastic. <laughs> they were like so nice. As soon as we entered, I think all the students were like, wow, this is like the best looking lab I've seen, you know, very conducive to great work. But I also love that the, the guy who was um, showing our, our team um, the gene editing work, he was just so interactive. Mm -hmm. um, he used layman's language as much as possible, even though we were with, with, with scientists. But still, it showed he, he was able to really get um, an energy going in, in explaining how the, the complex research work that they're doing. Um, so is he... Do you internally train in communication or how how is it that you have such a, a crop of great communicators in Tuskegee? Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you to say that. Uh, I believe I think it's the, the overall holistic training that we give them. You know, the science is first class here at Tuskegee and we are very proud of that. And I think we can train, we can kind of trace our legacy to the founders of the university. Booker T. Washington, uh, who founded this university, was an extraordinary communicator. If you go listen to his uh, speech at uh, a play in Atlanta Exposition in 1896, he really stirred the soul and, and heart of Americans in drawing attention to the plight of African Americans. And then he brought Booker uh, George Washington Carver, who was an extraordinary scientist, who also one of the very first agriculture scientists to recognize the value of communication and outreach, so much so that very first agricultural extension agent, mm. uh, Thomas Campbell, was uh, he was he's from from Tuskegee, he was a protege of George Washington Carver. Wow. So that kind of uh, culture of uh, doing first class science, but also having that we have some responsibility to 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 talk about our science to the people around us. It kind of permeates uh, at Tuskegee. And ah. um, I'm really glad that some of our students that you saw uh, were communicated well uh, yesterday when, on what kind of research they do about. And, uh, and I'm really proud of that. Great. But you yourself are a master communicator. You engage very much on social media. You're very open. And so was that hard to do? Um, or did, did, was it learned or is it your personality? So are you an early uptaker of technology? <laughs> I think all of that a little bit true. I always uh, uh, had a, a in, uh, although I've been always been a scientist, and a communicator was always a part of me. Even when I was um, in school, uh, I used to go into the you know, debating competitions and talk about yeah. it. And when I was in college, I was a science journalist. And oh, I used to write about science pieces. I see. And so I always had that element okay. of uh, talking about science uh, okay. all, all the time. And again, when the GMO controversy came along, and um, myself, along with a few other scientists, were kind of stuck our neck out and started talking over it, trying to explain this science to uh. the public. And that's how I got drawn into it. And social media came along uh, in the early 2000s, was a logical vehicle for us to get into because that gave us a big megaphone to reach a, a large number of people effortlessly. Yes. And that's what I do today. And Wow. Just trying to communicate science on Twitter, on Facebook, through my science pages. I have about uh, you know seventy-five thousand followers yes. in this media, and I 
on an average i last month i reached about 15 million users wow so as you can see wow. sitting in a rural uh, small town in tuskegee uh, i still have an oversized impact which is again to the, it's a testimony to the power of the technology today yes. you are not it, it has democratized uh, yes. the voices you don't have to be in a, a you know a, a, a very powerful writer writing you know writing for a big newspaper yes. to reach a big audience that's wonderful that's wonderful honestly you're an inspiration to all of us we want to be you when we grow up but yesterday i was listening to you you know you have a way of whenever you're telling the story of Tuskegee or talking about the science of, you have a way of weaving the hidden histories within it. And yesterday when you were speaking to us, you said something about the connection Tuskegee has with Borlaug. Um, and I'd like you to say a little bit about that too, so the, the listeners can hear. Right, Norman Borlaug, as uh, many of your listeners would know, is a Nobel laureate who has been credited with saving a billion lives so because of the green revolution that he helped spawn by developing high yielding varieties of wheat when he was a, a scientist at International Center in Mexico. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have Dr. Norman Borlaug as a friend that uh. I got into agriculture and I got majored in genetics and plant breeding wow. because one day I listened to his speech wow. and he came to India in Bangalore where I was. Uh, I was like uh, 16 or 17 year old, an undergraduate student. I listened to his speech, and that day I decided I, I need to be. I, I had to go into this area wow. of plant breeding. I want to be, you know, something like him in a very small way. And t- little did I realize that uh, later, not only I would go into that field, but I would even, you know, he would kind of almost become a mentor to me wow. and, uh, and uh, befriend me even visited me for two days at Tuskegee oh, University wow. in 2003, wow. which was a, a, a remarkable, uh, 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 you know, the stroke of luck for me, for someone of that stature, uh, a great scientist, uh, Nobel laureate, to come visit me in Tuskegee, but he did, and he spent two days there, he spent a lot of time with our students, he visited our research farms and our research laboratories, and he delivered a big lecture at our auditorium and during that lecture, he narrated as to how he, Dr. Borlaug, architect of Green Revolution, worked all his life at uh, Institute in, in Mexico, how by through kind of six degrees of separation, what Kevin Bacon would say, that he was connected to Tuskegee University. Very briefly, Borlaug, uh, uh, the, how he is connected is Henry Wallace Jr., Henry Wallace, was uh, the the vice president of United States who helped uh, start this institute in Mexico. Uh, he could not find money directly from the United States government when Mexican government called him in 1938 or 39 to see if the U.S. government would help start a, a, a wheat research center in Mexico so they too could uh, have the the great yield increases that U.S. had seen earlier in the 20s and 30s with corn and wheat. And uh, what Henry Wallace did was to help connect the Mexican government with the Rockefeller Foundation in, in New York. And Rockefeller Foundation readily agreed to fund an institute for agriculture in Mexico. Mm. And when they funded that, they to head that 
research, they got a young scientist, Dr. Norman Borlaug, who had just finished his PhD from University of Minnesota and mm. was just begun to work at DuPont mm. to come and head that. And uh, this Henry Wallace Jr. is, uh, is grew up in Iowa mm. and uh, when he was five year old, uh, his father, um, who was a professor at Iowa State University, had a house guest at, the, at in his house, a student, a black student who mm. could not find, could stay in any dorm mm. because there were no rooms, there were no dorms for black people over there. I'm talking about 1894. Wow. And so he had a, a, a student, a graduate student who stayed in his house as a house guest. And this is George Washington Carver. Wow. So George Washington Carver, who himself was in early 20s at the time, uh, mentored Henry Wallace. Oh. Uh, uh, as a five-year-old Henry Wallace, every day used to go for a walk with George Washington Carver. And he says, and if you read his biography, that he got inspired into the wonders of nature and he got inspired into all the aspects of agriculture as a very young man uh, through George Washington Carver, as you know, was a great botanist, a great mm -hmm. naturalist. And so through morning walks, got inspired so much so that Henry Wallace, when he grew up, went on to start the largest seed company in the world, Pioneer Hybrid. Oh. Uh, by, and he was the one who brought the hybrids into corn and that uh, had became a model even before the Green Revolution. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to become a secretary for U.S. Department of Agriculture and then the Vice President of the United States. Oh my God. So that's God. where the connection between Borlaug and Tuskegee comes. That's extraordinary. Yeah, Henry Wallace did come to visit Tuskegee wow. in 1937 or 38 and to come to meet his uh, mentor. Oh and my he God. profusely thanked him, which was extraordinary yes. at the time a white person, yeah. a vice president of the United States, coming to a small rural town and to talk to a black professor and telling him, I am what I am because of you. Wow. I'm going to look for the links to that and put it in the show notes so that people can see that powerful image and that narrative. Yeah, you, have, you have a speech, the text of the speech. Oh, that's amazing. Gosh. So then the other thing you said yesterday, which was interesting, I think there's a statue that's been unveiled on the mm -hmm. Tuskegee campus that has to do with the polio vaccine. Exactly. I wondered if you could speak about that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something, you know, I'm, I'm learning. Uh, uh, Tuskegee played a very key role in the eradication of the polio. Uh, polio vaccine, as you know, was developed in the 1950s by Jonas Sack mm -hmm. at University of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And uh, this polio vaccine was multiplied on, on human cell lines called HeLa cells. Mm -hmm. HeLa cells, as uh, many of your listeners would know, stands for Henrietta Lacks. Yes. Right? Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who developed cancer and when yes. she got into Johns Hopkins University, they took a piece of her humorous tissue and that was self-replicating yes. so those cells could be grown yes. in the laboratory by themselves unlike yes. other regular cells and that became a foundation for modern biomedicine yes. so much so that hundreds of drugs have been developed using HeLa cells yes. a lot of diagnostics and literally million papers research papers have been written with using HeLa cells. Wow. And Tuskegee played a critical role 
in in multiplying those hela cells in the 1950s and also to 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 play a key role in the field testing in the clinical testing of the mm. polio vaccine to to test its efficacy and then to distribute the vaccine uh, to different places uh, and that was important because the ski was also the place where uh, a lot of polio victims the young black yeah. children who were stricken with polio were treated mm-hmm. it was called infantile paralysis at that time mm. and infantile paralysis Uh, the foundation for infantile paralysis was started by a, a person called Basil O'Connor mm-hmm. who was a personal lawyer to mm-hmm. President Roosevelt mm-hmm. President Roosevelt himself was a polio victim and he was in the yes, region yes. you know and he used to come to a place near Tuskegee called Warm Springs Georgia mm-hmm. to to rehabilitate to yes. recover uh, from his polio and and so this infantile paralysis was started and had a major operation in Tuskegee mm-hmm. and in the operation in the in the hospital incidentally in is that hospital building is where my office oh, is still wow. today and is also where a lot of this Tuskegee syphilis patients yes. are part of this very cruel experiment yes, were yes. treated anyway this infantile paralysis laid to the foundation became march of dimes and the director yeah. of that is Basil O'Connor mm. the the executive director of that was also became the board member of our board of trustees at Tuskegee University and became the chairman of the board of trustees at Tuskegee ah. University and provided 6 million dollars at the time wow. to start an infantile paralysis uh, hospital at Tuskegee University and so we treated a lot of those young black children wow. because remember we are talking about 1930s and 40s yeah. where blacks could not go to white hospitals yes. so Tuskegee was the one of the very few places where they had a hospital for yes. blacks and they treated them and a lot of people i know including Lionel Richie yeah. who is from Tuskegee was born in that hospital oh my goodness and so we have a yesterday is a, is a remarkable day in our Uh, Tuskegee history because we unveiled a statue uh, to commemorate uh, the Tuskegee's important role that we played in eradicating polio and in treating any of the African American children at our uh, hospital there. Wow. I feel so moved by that because uh, when I was a child in in Nigeria I remember when those vaccines when we you know Uh, when yes when they come and I and I had a neighbor um, who was a school friend of mine who didn't get the the vaccine mm-hmm. and um, so, so so she had to wear calipers all yes. her life um, and to think that we are here today from that those moments and how his how science is so truly global and impactful and the multiplier effects of relationships conversations and things mm-hmm. that then trigger um extraordinary uh, innovations True. and also also it's instructive because it's even today even the polio vaccine was developed in 1950s and polio was you know uh, practically been eradicated yes. in our lifetime now there is still the lingering effect yes. of polio we just had a case of polio in new york state new york really? a few years ago ah. and uh, and uh, sadly Uh, Nigeria uh, your home country yes. has some polio cases and Pakistan and Afghanistan have polio uh, because of some of the politics around polio vaccine yeah. administration 
Well, it's also about miscommunication. Mm. So we had serious issues in northern Nigeria around miscommunication mm. of um, what the polio vaccine may be for. And so some communities were feeling it was perhaps a means of sterilizing, right. you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and so there were narratives around that which stopped people from getting this uh, uh, life-saving vaccines. And it, it brings us back to where we started, the importance of communication in mm -hmm. saving lives and transforming life outcomes and, and life opportunities. And um, perhaps uh, we'll close now because we're nearly at the end of our 20 mm -hmm. minutes. But I'd like you to give us maybe two or three three or four tips on how to be better communicators mm -hmm. as scientists or science allies, those that wish to support us in communicating science better. Oh, thank you so much. And you know, as at the, at the Alliance for Science in Cornell University, you guys are doing a wonderful job. I try. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm really thankful to you for coming here and yeah. partnering with us and trying to help train the yeah. future generation. and. You know, I've really not been trained as a science communicator. Yeah. I don't have any formal training. But from by looking back, the, what I would like to, uh, to to advise young people, especially young students and scientists, that communication is important. You must try to communicate. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be very good at it. You know, just, okay. just talk plainly. Mm -hmm. You don't need any much training in that. Mm -hmm. Just very really talk talk plainly, talk to people around you, talk at the dinner table, mm -hmm. uh, to your family, and mm -hmm. talk to your friends yes. and your community at the school. And when you get an opportunity to see some misrepresentation of science in, in a newspaper, write a letter to the editor pointing it out. Yes. And definitely get in the social media, there's a lot of conversation happen on science. Yes. And so get into that and if you see, say something. Yes. As Wayne Parrott was saying yesterday, if not you, who? who? And so yes. if you don't communicate science, and if you're a scientist, then uh, then people who are non-scientists are yes. some people who have a vested interest or even yes. someone with conspiracy theories, yes. they try to, to, to promote uh, all kinds of uh, yes. nonsensical theories that may be very counterproductive, yes. like vaccine hesitancy, yeah. doubts about global exactly. warming, and all of that are, yeah. are detrimental to yeah. the, the human progress. And so uh, you don't have to be very good, just, just say it. it Say it very simply, say yes. it in a manner yes. that people can understand. Yes. Have some passion yes. in what you say. And that comes across when yes. you're very passionate yes. and it comes from your heart. Yes. And I also like um, to infuse a bit of humor yes. in many things I do. And that's one of the reasons I believe that why some of, my, some of my tweets are more popular because I just make science a little bit more colorful. I use <laughs> memes, I yes, use metaphors yes, you do. and use everyday um, you know, everyday uh, stuff. I make joke, joke about a lot of these things yes. in a way to get. Yes, uh, no, you have traction. a lot of confidence, and I guess it. That's it. You have to start somewhere and build confidence in how you communicate. Many of us are worried about trolls. We're worried about being misrepresented, being misunderstood, misspeaking. But I guess with practice, you get better. I just want to close by saying thank you so much for everything you've shared. And I, I noted when you talked about the democratization of science, and really this is one of the big aspects of science communication. 
it's a democratization of science in that it allows people to see what choices they have and to make better choices. So it's not just about being informed, it's about you're empowering people to make better choices for their lives and to live better lives. So if you don't do it, you're actually almost denying people an opportunity to make better choices because you know, so why are you not sharing? Um, so I really, really appreciate that you've spent this time um, giving us a moment in our, our season one podcast uh, and uh, we will reach out to your followers as well to follow us, follow Science Ally and tell us how we can do better, improve and, and support you in, in your science communication journey. So Dr. Prakash, thank you so much. Thank you, Sheila. Thank, thank you. you. Been listening to the Science Allies podcast. If you've enjoyed this or if it sparked any questions, get in touch. You can reach us on any of our social media platforms. And please think about joining one of our communities. Follow the link in our show notes and you can subscribe to our newsletter and other products. Don't forget to like and share these products too. See you next time.